This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Dr. Anthony Fauci explained why COVID-19 hits African-Americans harder than others. Almost a double whammy, a double disadvantage. A, the disadvantage of more likely getting infected because of the jobs and your position in society and the likelihood of getting a more severe outcome. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Driving while black. Motor Trend magazine just dropped a really interesting piece. Yes, we get readers who say, you know, stay out of politics, stick to cars. This is not politics. This is a human rights issue. Mark Rechten is the editor-in-chief. Gretchen Soren wrote the story. I was fascinated by a little booklet that a, a colleague of mine showed me about 20 years ago called the Negro Motorist Green Book. Yes, that green book. Same one from the movie. This episode is about the hazards of driving while black today. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Hello, everybody. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. JJ, I have been a subscriber to Motor Trend magazine since I was a little kid. I'm probably eight or nine years old. And I've always over the years looked forward to getting my Motor Trend. So in the mail arrived the latest Motor Trend and I'm reading through it about all the cool cars. And then I get to a section I call Driving While Black. Fascinating story about about the experiences of um, African-Americans getting their cars and driving, particularly through the South, and it was just page turning. So I I invited Mark Rechton to come on. He is white, he's the editor-in-chief of Motor Trend, and I gotta say something to you. As a subscriber, Mark, uh, this is an incredibly bold move on your part. Um, First of all, why did you decide to publish this piece in a car magazine, and what has been the reaction from readers? There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think we live in an era where we see things that are, you know, in culture where things are ripped from the headlines, so to speak. But this is something that's been going on for 50, 60, 70 years in various forms. Now, obviously, back in the 50s and 60s, um, it was a lot more prevalent. But just because it was more prevalent then doesn't mean it doesn't happen now. And I think the important thing was to see that that, uh, Professor Soren's book just published really put a very fine point to what what the situation is how it's evolved and it made absolute sense for motor trend to step in here because motor trend is more than just about cars it's about car culture and yes we get readers who say you know stay out of politics stick to cars this is not politics this is a human rights issue and if people who read our publication are not able to enjoy the same joys of driving for the simple matter of the color of their skin. Um, To me, that's something that must be brought to people's attention. 
And feedback we got, you know, obviously we live in a very polarized uh, society right now. There were plenty of people who did say stick to cars, stay out of politics. There was, you know, accusations of social justice posturing, um, whataboutism, um, you know, accusing us being anti-cop, which is patently untrue. We, we work with both LAPD and El Segundo PD to help identify cars used in, in felonies, um, as well as a lot of get over it. This happened 50 years ago, not really understanding that this is still happening today. Um, on the flip side, though, we did get a lot of letters of support. Um, a lot of people saying, I had no idea this was happening back then. I had no idea this is still happening now in these very subtle and also very straightforward ways. So this was something that we felt we had to do. This wasn't, this wasn't brave on our part. This was something that just had to be done. You mentioned Gretchen Soren. Uh, we had not introduced her yet. JG, why don't you uh, introduce her and, and, and let's talk to her a little bit. She's the one who wrote the story that appears in Motor Trend magazine. Gretchen Soren didn't just write this article. She wrote a book, a whole book called Driving While Black. African-American travel and the road to civil rights. Gretchen, welcome. Mark, re uh, welcome as well. But Gretchen, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for writing this because uh, I've often thought about that, being an African-American, driving all the time, uh, about some of the things you write about. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is why did you write this? Well, uh, I, there are a couple of reasons. I started writing it because I'm an historian and I was fascinated by um, a book a little booklet that a, a colleague of mine showed me about 20 years about 20 years ago called the Negro Motorist Green Book. I was just fascinated by it and I wanted to do some research on it. And at the time I was working on my PhD and I thought, well, this would be a, an interesting topic to pursue. Um, and, and then the more I got into it, the deeper I, I, I got into it, uh, the reason I wrote it was because I have two children who drive. And um, before they went out on the road, I, I really had to talk to them about how to be safe. Um, and and I, I think that was, um, you know, it's still very important. My daughter recently, she has two children, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And um, she sent me a, a, a videotape of parents talking to their children yeah. about um, what to do if you're stopped by the police. So um, I, think that's, I think that's really important. And I will tell you, I'm not anti-police, not at all. But I do think this is something that we, um, as a society, need to think about. You know, Chris asked me on one of our earlier shows about the talk when, when it happened. Uh, mm -hmm. And my, my response was, it wasn't a talk for me, because growing up in the South, it was a conversation that started when I was about five and just continued until I left home. But I'm just interested in, in your situation. When did that happen for you? Well, for me, <clears throat> I didn't talk to my son about it until he turned 16. And it was, it was literally when he got his driver's permit that we had the conversation. My son is an incredibly handsome and social individual. And he was driving around uh, town all the time with multiple white girls in the car. And it, it terrified me. He thought nothing of it. These were, these were his friends. These were the kids he went to high school with. And it terrified me. Um, not so much when we were in our little village of Cooperstown where he was in high school and where everybody knows everyone, but, but literally when he went to Oneonta, which is the city that's 23 miles south of Cooperstown. And um, to be honest, the police department there doesn't have a very good reputation um, in terms of their um, work with the community. 
I, I thought uh, for, for both of you, I, I will bring Mark back in here. The, the really interesting parts of this were the types of automobiles that uh, black drivers began buying in, and for the purposes of this, we're mainly talking about the late 40s, early 50s, uh, big cars. And the reason that they bought big cars was because when they're traveling through the South, they never knew if they would be able to find a place to stay. So they wanted to be able to pack the car and sleep in it if necessary. Uh, safe cars, because if they were in an accident, they might not be able to go to a white hospital. And reliable cars, because they didn't want to break down for fear that some of the mechanics wouldn't take care of them because they were black. You know, I, it's still, I grew up in the Midwest and this kind of, stuff didn't happen around me and i'm i'm just it's so embarrassing uh as a white person to hear about this stuff going on i, I just did, did it shock you mark i mean i know you you knew it existed in a certain way but did, did uh gretchen's work shock you a little bit i have to say um in talking with professor soren and in reading her book there was so much about the experience of the black community um in terms of driving in terms of getting to destinations that I would never have thought of as, you know, a white person growing up. Um, you left out one other aspect of cars, and that would be that they needed to be fast. Now, as a white kid growing up, I wanted a fast car because I wanted to go fast because it was thrilling. Huh. Um, whereas black motorists needed a car to be fast so they could outrun an angry mob. And that was something that just never even entered into my frame of reference. And I think this book is, is really illustrative about how the reasons why black motorists buy the cars that they do are so much different. And, the, and then the level of inspection and interrogation that they have to do when going in to buy a car is, is from a some completely different frame of reference. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought this up about the speed and of course the, 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 the style of the car. Um, I don't know if any of you, maybe, um, some of you have read Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Mm -hmm. There is a reference in there to the Buick. Yes. <laughs> and they lived in Chicago. Her father had a Buick. And that car was always clean. And it was always exactly what, you know, we wanted our cars to be. Nice, um, clean, you know, a big. big. But, but, but it was a strong car. And that was a part of the reason for that car being there, existing there. I can tell you for sure, it's not so much just the South, but it, it was anywhere during that time frame uh, where those kinds of cars were important. Gretchen, I read what you said in there, in, in the article um, regarding uh, where we are now with um, cars and hopefully where this goes um, as we look towards the future. I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts that you would like to share about uh, what you learned while writing, not the book, but per se the article, um, trying to put this article in the right, I guess, place for people to read it. Because uh, as you say, you know, you don't have anything against police, but you need to, you needed to make this, this article sort of true to form about what we're looking at today. Um, you know, I have to say, you, Mark Recton said that, um, this was something he had to do. Well, I, he is my new hero because I think what he did was incredibly courageous. 
I, I didn't even realize it at the time when he, when he first asked me to write the article, but um, I, I, I think it was incredibly courageous. And, and I've been getting lots of emails as well. People have taken the time to find my email address and to write to me about their experiences with cars uh, and, and also to tell me um, how much they either appreciated the article or um, ha have some bone to pick <laughs> about the article. So it's, um, it's been very um, interesting. Um, I think, you know, I, th I think we don't in this country really want to address American history as mm -hmm. it really happened. I think we are afraid of it. And we're afraid that any criticism um, means something terrible about the country, which it doesn't. I mean, I, th I think one of the most important things that African Americans have done um, and that white Americans who are the allies of, of African Americans have done is to push these inequities, which makes us better. Um, and we can, we can do better. Um, and I, I think that's one of the most important things that, that this article um, and, and uh, you know, this relationship with Motor Trend has, has made me think about that we really need to face up to our history yeah. Um, yes, it was. It, it did start a long time ago. It didn't start 50 years ago. It started um, at the very beginning of our of our history, and there are ramifications um, that were still that are still being felt um, in 2020, and we need to address them. And I would should point out, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Dr. Soren, your this is going to be a PBS documentary coming out in October. Is that correct? Yes, October 13th. It will oh. be on PBS. Can't wait. <laughs> well, and, and part of the reason I bring that up. And I don't know, I, and I'll go back uh, to Mark, just simply because it's <laughs> the, the single most shocking picture in this incredible article, Driving While Black in the Latest Motor Trend, is in Greenville, Texas, a street, oh, hanging over the street, the main street in Greenville, Texas, a sign that says, Greenville, welcome. On the left, it says, the blackest land. And on the right, it says, the whitest people. And then the caption said, that banner frightened many black travelers, you think? I mean, I, who in heaven's name would think that's a good idea to put up something and say we have the whitest people? That's, it's just, I, I, I mean, I don't, I've never been to Greenville, Texas, and I have no desire to go, but I, I, that's just so incredibly awful. And looking at the dates of the cars, they appear to be cars in the 19, mid-50s, it looks like. Yeah, I think that that photograph is from the 1950s. I'm just, did it shock you to see that, Mark? Well, it, it's tricky because, I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, stereotypes about uh, the South, the Deep South. But I think what was more shocking to me was how pervasive this was in places that weren't, you know, that don't fall under the South of the Dixie yeah. uh, border you know if, if you find out that you know just traveling to to Atlantic City was fraught with peril for someone you know traveling from you know traveling through Connecticut traveling through Illinois traveling through Indiana these are all states that are that are north of the Mason-Dixon line and yet there were um, you know deep-seated pockets of, of systemic racism and I'm not just talking about police and you know the cops trying to you know whatever whatever their justification you know trying to protect the locals from anybody from outside who doesn't look familiar which is obviously code for black, um, but more having to do with the people themselves. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Gretchen, in part of giving the talk to her children, may have also said, and be ready for the look, 
um, from, you know, today we call them Karens, but, you know, the, the, huh. the overly concerned suburban, again, stereotypical female white mom who's, who's, I'm, I'm not, I'm not racist. I have lots of black friends, but, you know, I saw something I felt I had to say, something I felt I need to make a phone call. And then, you know, three days later, she's scrambling to protect her reputation because she's been ratioed on Twitter. You know, these things are still happening today and they are still happening in every state of the union. This is not, this is not just a deep South issue. Um, obviously, I think you have to have been living under a rock to have not seen what happened in Colorado, where a, a black family went to a nail salon in a shopping mall and the license plate on their Colorado SUV matched the license plate of a stolen Montana motorcycle. Different state plates, completely different vehicle. They, get, they all get pulled over, including small children in the car, handcuffed face down on the asphalt. And that, I mean, this is Colorado. Come on, we got to do better than this. Terrible. And you know, Mark, this is, I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, you know, as you say, you have to be hiding, living under a rock, not hiding, but completely existing under a rock, not to be aware of this. And that's a part of the reason why I brought that anecdote up about Michelle Obama's book. That was Chicago where they lived, you know, and where they knew and were aware of what they needed to do. Uh, to be safe and to protect uh, their family, her father did. You know, I heard a story from a gentleman who, who passed away not few few years ago. He was in his 90s, but his name was Axel Henri, and he told me a story about riding a train back in the 30s from New York to Washington, D.C. Everything was just fine uh, until he was going to Hampton, actually Hampton, Virginia, Everything was just fine until he crossed the Mason-Dixon. He was able to sit where he wanted to, talk to who he wanted to. But once that train crossed the Mason-Dixon, there was a devastating change of uh, scenery there and events and attitudes. And this is something that people, I think, just have to always consider, even now, because of the times we live in, regardless of where you are or what you're doing. And you've talked, both of you, about the Allies uh, in this particular case, and you talked about letters of support, and I'm interested, if you're able to say, Mark, where some of those letters of support came from. They've come from all over the United States. Um, this is not purely a, a northern or uh, coastal elite phenomenon. Um, many of the letters of support have come from south of the Mason-Dixon line, um, from people who say, yeah, we know we have a checkered past, we have a stained past, we have something that, that needs to be made right. And these are people who, who wouldn't be, you know, in today's jargon, be classified as woke. Um, you know, these are just ordinary people who read Motor Trend and who expect to get articles about horsepower and, and paint colors and cool new vehicles coming out. And they see this very different uh, piece of editorial that we published. And they felt this was something that absolutely belongs in the pages of Motor Trend. And this can be, they, they came from every and all state, every and all walk of life. It reminded me the the whole um, driving while black, it, well, and particularly the part about um, accommodations, reminded me of a story that I read, and it's a it's a it's a, a happy story. I I live in the St. Petersburg area of Florida now, and um, this took place in this area. The story is the St. Louis Cardinals used to have spring training down here, and. As the 50s progressed, they began to get their first black players on the team. And I think it was the first spring where they had some of these black players, Kurt Flood and uh, Bob Gibson, I think, were two of them. And they were trying to find accommodations for the team to stay. 
And they, because the, some of the team was white and there were a few black players on the team, they said, well, the white players can stay here. The black players have to go to this place on the south side of St. Petersburg. And Stan Musial stood up and he said, we're going where our team goes. So we're all going to stay either here or we're going to stay on the south side. And the hotel owner on the north side said, you can't stay here. He said, okay, fine. They all went to the south side to a place that was, quote, a colored hotel uh, or motel. And they all stayed there. It was because of Stan Musio saying, no, we are a team. That's not right. I've always admired, I'm a Cardinal fan. I grew up as a Cardinal fan. So uh, forgive me for that. But, but it, it, I've always admired Stan Musio as a person. And I just think that's a wonderful story that he set an example. And because he was Stan Musio, the team said, okay, because of who he was. So I don't know if you guys knew that story or not, but I read a biography about him and it, it takes place right around where I live. So I found it interesting. I haven't heard that story, but I, I heard a similar story um, from Mudcat Grant about um, uh, Ted Williams. So, you know, when I think when the teams were integrated, some of some of the white players said, yeah, this is the right thing to do. Um, and Ted Williams did exactly the same thing, according to Mudcat Grant, um, when Mudcat was uh, denied entrance to a hotel. Ted Williams said, well, then we're not staying here either. Right. I just love that story. And it makes me, makes me like Stan Musial even more than I already did. And I liked him quite a bit before that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Professor Soren, I want to ask you, um, where do we go from here? Based on what you've written, what you know, what we've mm -hmm. discussed, what we, what we know are still problems, where do we go from here? You know, um, one of the things that I found as part of my research was that President Obama actually did um, convened a task force on policing. And it was really very valuable and very useful and supported by a lot of police organizations. Um, and I think um, it, it really talks about a way forward. Um, and, you know, I'm a historian. I, I really deal a lot with the past, but also looking to, you know, what, how can we use the past? Um, and that was the thing that, that to me said, you know, this is, there, there are really some, some things that we can do to make things better. Really quickly, um, you know, what about women? Because as Mark mentioned, that situation in Colorado, which escaped no one's attention that was paying attention, um, involved some young girls. And more and more, we're seeing situations involving young women, African-American women or women of yeah. color. What are, your, what are your thoughts about dealing with that? You know, that's very interesting because historically women were not doing as much driving as, as men were. You know, for family vacations, the father was the driver, the mother, as in my situation, the fa my father was the driver, my mother was kind of the navigator, the person with the maps was paying attention to, you know, where you needed to make the turns and where you needed to get off the highway. Um, but, but today, I think, obviously, women are, are driving a lot more and they're in the very similar situation that men drivers are in. So I, I don't know if I have any if I have any good advice about what's happening, other than I think women also have to be very vigilant, um, particularly women driving nice cars. I mean that seems to be the thing that really gets you, um, you know, can can have you can get you stopped. Yeah. Well, I, I I'll just say to my my fellow um, motorheads who like to read about cars. Yes, there are great articles about the new Bronco that's coming out and some other exotic cars. So there's plenty of stuff to read in here. That's the thing that we 
get Motor Trend 4 anyway, but if you pick up the September 2020 edition, I promise you, people who listen to this Colors podcast, you're obviously interested in the topic, you will really thoroughly find the, the, the story that, uh, that Gretchen wrote and that Mark had the guts to publish in Motor Trend. I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. So I encourage everybody, go, go uh, make Mark wealthy by buying a lot of editions <laughs> of this. Are you, are you getting any heat at all from the people that own the magazine, Mark, by saying, what are you doing? Uh, no, none at all. In fact, great levels of support. Motor Trend is actually uh, part of the, the larger Discovery Communications uh, Corporation. Mm. And uh, the, the entire corporation has come out very strongly on, on the Black Lives Matter uh, side. Um, I think one other thing that we also need to make clear is this is more than just a, a police, uh, you know, re relearning how we police. Um, I think this, we currently live in a, a state that is highly divisive, that is highly suspicious of the outsider, whether they be black or Hispanic. And I think that we need to, to move this conversation into a place where, you know, the, the inclusivity factor is much more, you know, we, we become much more inclusive in, in this conversation. And um, for those who are hearing this podcast after the September 2020 issue uh, is off the newsstand, you can go to motortrend.com. And, and find the articles, not only the one uh, Driving While Black, but also uh, one that is called Racing While Black, which is a profile of Willie T. Ribs, who was one of the fastest guys on the racetrack back in the 70s and 80s. And you probably never heard of him because of there was institutionalized racing in, in racing. I remember Willie T. Ribs. I remember. I, I was a teenager in that era. So thank you both. Um, but before we go, we do have to say as well, Dr. Soren has a book out and we want you to go look at that book too make her rich as well <laughs> <laughs> no, all right well listen you two, thank you so much for coming on it's been a real honor having you on and i'm just thrilled with the work you both did thank seriously. you very much yes. really thanks a lot for having us thank you you're listening to colors my name is sherry jackson i'm an african-american in birmingham alabama Race in America is this opportunity presented to each generation to get it right. As a journalist early in my career, I can remember covering a story on hospice in Bald Knob, West Virginia. Our crew met at the home of an elderly white man who was dying of lung cancer. I interviewed his nurse, then him. He told me that through his illness, he found Christ and forgiveness because he said, there was a time I would never let anyone like you in my house. I remember thinking how deep his hatred for people who look like me must have been, that here he was practically on his deathbed, taking pride in the fact that he let a black woman in his house. Today, I wonder about his children and his children's children. Did he pass down a blessing or a curse? He'd found Christ and forgiveness? My name is Guadalupe Perez Posada. I am a Latina living in Dallas, Texas. I am also currently a high school junior. The protests against racial injustice and police brutality have truly opened my eyes to the reality that comes with being a person of color in America. Seeing the final moments of George Floyd on camera was a life-altering moment for me. In that second, everything I thought I knew was thrown out the window. I was so frustrated and sad that I had to see a video in order to truly 
understand and feel how horrific the abuse was. I was angry with myself for not becoming educated sooner, and I was especially angry that African Americans have been enduring this for centuries while it was all swept under the rug. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Chris, driving while black has been a constant in my life, in the life of every other black male and female, uh, in my at least in my my lifetime, because cars have been around since well before I was born. But it certainly has been something that we have thought about and 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 thought about endlessly, and it it, it never stopped occurring to me. You know, even today, in 2020, when I drive certain places, what that's going to mean. You know, what route do I take? Do I want to take this back road? Do I want to drive to this state, this county? It's sad, but it's a reality that I, I believe it has to happen. But I would I, say... I, well, I have a question for you. Well, okay, but I want to comment on that if I can, because... I feel the same way too, less so now than I used to, but I feel the same way too and, and did particularly years ago about driving as a white guy driving through certain parts of Washington. I wasn't afraid of the police, but there were times that I was worried that my being a white guy, that I would be targeted for some sort of hostile action. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. Do you feel that way now? No, and... uh no, no. I, I, there are neighborhoods, but it's not related to color. It's just related to there are some um, creepier neighborhoods and others, places that don't have much nightlife, uh, places that... Do you remember what the neighborhood was like around where Nats Park is now? I do. It was just warehouses and... Half Street, uh, Buzzards Point. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was an industrial area. Industrial area, right, right. And so, no, I don't feel the same way now about, in fact, um, there's a, unfortunately, because of this pandemic, I don't get to do the stuff I'd like to be able to be doing. But there's a, I'm learning about, there's a very rich African-American history in the southern part of St. Petersburg. And since I live right near there, um, we often drive around that area just to see it. Uh, because it's, I mean, they got some restaurants I want to go to, uh, and some, some, you know, art. There's a uh, African American art um, uh, museum that I would, I'm dying to go to, but not literally dying because of the virus. I'm not going inside right now. Um, I, as we're recording this, this is the week that this god awful thing happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, with Jacob Blake. Um, how on earth? Can police think they're going to get away with shooting somebody who's unarmed? My God, don't they know everybody has a cell phone? And if they don't, there are security cameras on virtually every corner of every city. What on earth are they thinking, JJ? I don't understand. Why don't you understand? Because they're they're going to get they're not going to get away with it. They're going to get caught. It's just it's ridiculous. I got. Do you know that? And this is a statistic I found today. Only 13 days in 2020, as of the day we're recording this, police did not kill anybody. In 235 days of 2020, 751 people have been killed by the police. Why? 
Why? There are other ways you can subdue people. You can use stun guns and rubber bullets. Why would you fire seven shots at a guy's back who's getting in his car, speaking of driving while black? Yeah, Chris, I understand you're upset. I understand. God, am I upset. I understand your point. And, you know, the question you ask, and I get it, I get it that it's rhetorical, but this is a question that African Americans have been asking for decades, centuries. Why? You know, why, why, why? I hope that your outrage now registers with some of those folks who, who, who may have experienced the outrage. But the question I'll ask, though, is what are you going to do with that outrage? What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to understand a lot better when people start talking about problems with the police, because from that, that, that is equally as disturbing as George Floyd, equally. Yeah. And I mean, in one case, it's a guy with his, you know, his knee on somebody's neck. This guy didn't even get to call out. I can't breathe. They just shot him in the guy, that police officer. And I still don't understand why. As, as best we understand it, he was trying to break up a fight, but he got his little kids in the car. and He's like, OK, I'm going to leave. And he, the, the, the guy's not dead, which is a shock from. I mean, that's point blank, uh, for, you know, just right in his back, you know, seven bullets. I mean, you can see it. He can't he can't have been more than a couple of feet away. How he's alive. I don't know. But I just well, it's. It's it's it, that can't keep happening. I got to say, um, it's it's going to keep happening because and I'm sad to say this because there are people like the people who did that uh, that aren't listening to us. They aren't listening to people who are asking the questions you're asking. They aren't listening to the people out in the streets that are protesting. They aren't listening to their supervisors who say, don't do this. There are people out there that are just on a completely different mental planet. But what I will say, and I just hope to God that there is something, some reason, something that we didn't see that prompted this individual to do that. And I'm not saying that because I sympathize with him. I'm saying if he just did that in cold blood, just because, 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 then I, JJ, there can't, there can't. I, I, I wish you were right about that. I understand why you're saying that. There cannot be any justification for a police officer shooting somebody at that short distance seven times. I understand. I, I'm just saying. Just, I hope that there's something that we didn't see. But you're right. There's nothing we didn't see. Probably. I can't, well, you know, if you shot him once, then you might say, well, maybe he was threatening. Maybe he was reaching for a gun. Maybe there was a weapon in the car. Seven times. You got to be kidding me. I, I feel you. I hear you, man. I'm just saying, I just hope to God that there's something that we don't know, but there isn't probably. And um, only time yeah. will tell. But like I said before, you asked the question, you know, is this going to keep happening? And yes, it is. It's going to keep happening until we get to the point where somebody or something radically changes the way in which people think about other people. I mean, would he have done that to a different person? Would he have done that with a white person? Would he have done that with an Asian person? Would he have done that with a woman? What do you think? 
I mean, obviously, you talk about rhetorical question. I, I, I don't know the answer to it. I, I, a woman, probably not. Um, an Asian, probably not. You know, your friend John Norquist, who yeah. was just on not too long ago, and he was former a mayor of Milwaukee. Brilliant interview. You know, he talked about this thing about racism. You know, he talked about how it's the combination of prejudice and power. This was a perfect example of it. Mm. Don't you think? Uh, <laughs> I don't think there was anything perfect about it at all. But, well, I'm uh, saying this is a perfect example no, of what, what Norquist is talking about. I, I, I guess so. It's just it's just baffling to me. Uh, and in this and again, I go back to what I said before in this day and age. If you are a police, you know, if you don't have a body cam on and that I think it's a good idea for police to have body cams on that way, we can know what's going on. And I know a lot of police are resisting it. Some police want it, in fact, um, but to, to prove that they, you know, they were provoked. But in this thing, I can't imagine what uh, there's just no justification for it. So not I'm, at all. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too angry to be um, to be rational about it right now, to be honest with you. Well, my friend. There's no need for both of us to be angry today. So I'm, <laughs> well, I'm I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of withholding mine, but you, you, okay. you'll hear about it later. Okay. I'll look forward to it on another podcast. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. That's going to do it for this show. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. In Portland, Oregon, when a group of mostly white mothers showed up to protest in solidarity. I realized that there was something about it that I found troubling. Robin Gavon, celebrated writer from the Washington Post and an African-American woman was conflicted. And um, I realized it's possible to feel both good and bad about uh, what was happening uh, simultaneously. The blessing and the curse of having allies. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you have any questions or comments, send them to us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. That's one word, thecolorspodcast at gmail. Also, before we go, we want to give thanks to those who've helped us along. Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Abigail Constantino, the WTOP social team, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Ellie Rowe, Greg Strassel, Beth Gibbs, Melissa Howell, Adisa Hargett-Robinson, Joey Rivera, and Greg Christian for their questions, and RTDNA, the Radio Television Digital News Association, for spreading the word about colors. And of course, for our music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Rick Steele. And most of all, thank you for listening to us. And finally, just remember to keep talking to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts.